Hi, I'm Dan Bukasic from LawyersWithDepression.com. Today's guest is Dr. John Breeden. Dr. Breeden is Executive Director of the University of Michigan Comprehensive Depression Center, the Rachel, the Rachel Upjohn Professor of Psychiatry and Clinical Neurosciences in the Department of Psychiatry and Research Professor in the Molecular and Behavioral Neuroscience Institute. Among his many accomplishments, he has published more than 268 scientific papers, edited a number of scientific books, including Treatment of Recurrent Depression, and has been acknowledged in various listings of the best doctors and the top 100 psychiatrists in America. He has been a devoted educator, having delivered more than 300 invited presentations on depression and other topics nationally and internationally and was twice acknowledged as Teacher of the Year at the University of Michigan Medical School. Welcome to the show, Dr. Green. Oh, thank you, Daniel. It's nice to be talking with you. It's an important topic. Well, to begin our show, uh, I think uh, first and foremost, uh, how would you explain uh, what depression is to our audience? Depression is an illness indisputably. It is not just a state of sadness because your football team lost. What we're talking about is these are illnesses that uh, tend to have linkages with stress, lifetime events, substance abuse, disappointments, losses, deaths, and all of those variables that we live with, but also must be understood as having those events alter the functions of our brains. These are brain illnesses, and, um, and they are best understood if they are put into that context. So um, they are common. They occur, depression occurs in approximately one of every five people during a lifetime. The age of onset tends to be starting to peak between 15 and 24 years of age. So they're diseases of the young when we, when we first have them. And untreated, they wreak huge consequences. The World Health Organization has just declared that clinical depression is the most disabling of all of the illnesses that they deal with. Doctor, what makes depression so disabling? Depression, when it is presenting in a full-fledged fashion, affects functions such as sleep, concentration, humor, fun, enjoyment, sexual functions, uh, the ability to perform job duties, um, it basically also, and this is not well known um, because we tend to see these as predominantly mood illnesses, it is an illness that produces a whole array of physical symptoms. So people will have more pains than usual, headaches. They will have alterations of their appetite and it's quite common to have weight loss occur, about two-thirds of people with depression. Strangely, another 
category, the one-third that are remaining, often will gain weight. They do less. So when you start saying we have concentration, pleasure, sexual function, physical feelings and distress, uh, performance, and almost everything else that you could start listing get impacted by these illnesses, you can understand the reasons why we have disability. There isn't much we do when we're depressed that isn't altered in a bad way. What's going on in the brain? I mean, uh, when we talk about depression being an illness, I assume you're referring to something going on in the brain, an illness that is causing all these symptoms. Absolutely, and uh, some, to this day, some don't like this is a brain illness. I mean, it scares, and yet uh, these these are. So there are, um, we've learned so much about neurosciences that there are many of our functions that are controlled by what some call chemical messengers, what neuroscientists call neurotransmitters, um, or inflammatory uh, cytokines, uh, interleukins, things like that. and. All of the mechanisms in our brain are pretty finely tuned. Depression, probably because of some genetic influences that are maybe set off at respective ages, such as teenage years, by stresses, losses, etc. Depression alters those functions. So suddenly, the components that make us um, smile, talk, sleep, eat, all of those things have different influences. And part of the challenge of clinicians is getting a clear understanding of what might be going on so that they can treat most effectively. So in a simple way, we can pick up on the fact that while we don't know the exact cause for every individual, these are alterations of brain chemistry, and if we can help restore the alterations, it does help people get better and then stay better. Two points I want to address, doctor. Uh, one is that it seems to me as I uh, travel around the country and speak to many people with depression, so many of them uh, seem like myself to struggle both with depression and anxiety. The second point is about the uh, involves recurrent depression when depression goes away and then it comes back and I myself have experienced that. Can you first address why is it so common or is it common in your experience for people to experience both depression and anxiety? It is probably the norm, namely uh, that's what usually occurs. Depression and and anxiety are bed partners. They, uh, they tend to um, go together. Often during adolescence, anxiety is the precursor. I mean, it may be there for a year or two, and then followed by more depression symptoms. But the reason, you're asking a very insightful question, uh, the reason they occur together is that some of the same pathways in our uh, neuroscience pathways in our brains um, control both. 
And so um, the things that, that create depression sometimes are associated just routinely with anxiety. And the third one that is variation of anxiety, panic attacks uh, also coexist. Uh, so sometimes the anxiety is so overwhelming that people blame that as their primary function disturbance uh, and they say that's why I'm depressed because I have so much anxiety. And the figures vary a little bit depending upon which studies you see and how old, but it's easily around two-thirds of people have both. So um, the best way to try to think about dealing with those with depressions and anxieties is to go after both to try to treat both uh, effectively, whether that's with therapy, medications, exercise, all of the things that we know help. And um, the, the best results occur when we can get rid of both. The second question that you addressed is a very important one, and that is recurrent depression. Uh, I actually devoted a decade of my life to that topic, and uh, and the reason is is that running depression programs such as we have here at Michigan, you discover that the age of onset may be in a teenage year or a college year, and then all of a sudden it'll tend to go away. Um, I mean, it fades. But three years later, another stress occurs, and the symptoms come back often worse, and if still untreated, uh, they may still go away, um, and you know, seven, eight months later, and so people finally say, well, I got this under control, finally it's gone, and then they'll come back again, and uh, this time, again, sometimes worse, I'm kind of giving the profile, but for that reason, clinical depressions are best understood as being episodic and recurrent disorders that untreated become worse with each episode and get closer together and become harder to treat. For that reason, Daniel, it's really important that we do everything we can to do a better job in screening and finding these illnesses earlier when they are most treatable and then future episodes can be prevented. And how are these uh these illnesses, doctor, how are they screened for? When you say that, what do you mean by that? The screening approaches are currently limited more or less to um, the use of rating scales. Often these can be, you know, what kinds of symptoms? What's your mood like? Do you, are you blue? Uh, do you really have any trouble sleeping or sleeping too much? What's pleasure? Uh, where are you with regard to appetite? Has there been weight loss, gain, food not tasting the same way? Have you had thoughts of not wanting to go on living? Is there uh, a consistency to how these get set off? Have you actually ever acted on them, having suicide attempts? If you put that profile together and you start actually looking at them, when you have uh, a collection of, and it's a simple effort to do this, and these can be done confidentially, 
people come up with a clue is that, well, you, you're already experiencing symptoms of depression. And the rating scales that are commonly used are available even online. They can be found on websites. And if the symptoms are present and persist, it should be paid attention to. Sadly, uh, this is now speaking from my public health orientations, uh, we should be screening these, since these illnesses start, as I mentioned earlier, between the ages of 15 to 24, our peak ages of onset, we should be screening in our schools. And that actually has now been recommended by the federal health agencies that um, overlook these aspects. We screen for an array of illnesses, uh, and yet we don't do this one, despite it being the most common and eventually maybe the most disabling. And, and uh, by the way, if we're caring about money, it's this, depressions are the second most costly of all of the medical illnesses that we deal with in America. What makes them so costly? And when we think of cost, what are we talking about? The cost in this case isn't quite coming from things like expensive cardiovascular illnesses are the most costly, but it's not coming from expensive surgeries or transplants or whatever. It's coming from the fact that it starts young, it tends to be episodic and recurrent and come back if untreated. It interferes with work. It leads to often uh, a number of attempts at trying other kinds of treatments. So people will take sedative hypnotics and they'll deal with things with their pains. So healthcare costs actually go up. And uh, workplace issues uh, are uh, fairly revealing in the way that if you talk to employee assistance program or managers who watch the budgets in factories or corporations or workplaces in general, depression, depression is probably the biggest cause of missed work days. And so uh, the other one intriguingly is back pain. But um, depressions really start interfering with, with revenue streams for, for businesses. So they're counted in when I say most expensive. The actual expenses of getting treatments are not where it comes. If we got treatments, we would be actually cutting the overall costs. Um, I'd like to circle back around to uh, something you touched on in your earlier response. You mentioned suicide. And I think that uh, part and parcel of coming to terms with that, I think so many people uh, when they hear somebody say that they're depressed or they're struggling with depression, um, just don't understand. They don't have a reference point for what depression is. And I think connected to that point is suicide because people who, who may not understand uh, when they hear or they know somebody who's committed suicide because of their depression simply don't understand how somebody could possibly have done that. You know, how bad could the depression have been for someone to do that? Can you give us a little bit of your insights as to the connection between depression and suicide? Uh, 
in teaching medical students, Daniel, I've sometimes overdone this just to trace, but not much, by saying that suicide is to clinical depression as fevers are to pneumonia, mm-hmm. to flus or something like that, influenza. Because more often than not, if someone has a clinical depression, it has, for reasons that we frankly just don't understand fully, almost most of the time producing a feeling of, I don't want to go on living like this. Uh, I've got to get stopped. The anguish is, is terrible. And it's been referred to by those of us who work in this arena as they'll develop negative views of self world and future. I'm worthless. Uh, uh, some I can tell it sometimes people tell me that that doesn't help. Uh, the world is a agonizing place. My boss doesn't like me. I've now lost my job, uh, lost a girlfriend, uh, whatever. And the future is what's left. Uh, and so that type of a profile gets very discouraging. And really, in some cases, enough to stir up thoughts of, I don't want to go on this way. The only way to understand suicide really accurately, because of most of the time these are linked to clinical depressions, is to say we have to treat the underlying causes. Now, in some cases, you'll see media stories made out of somebody who did this in, in some principal way or whatever. Unfortunately, um, that isn't the case most of the time. Most of the people who are dying of suicide have treatable underlying conditions, and the thoughts and ideas of I don't want to go on living go away when the underlying Hmm. illness is treated. And usually, that is clinical depression. So early treatment is really fundamental. Doctor, with the treatment, I'd like to turn our attention, if we if we can, to solutions and what people uh, suffering with depression can do for themselves, and maybe what loved ones can do for them. And first of all, you mentioned treatment in the context of therapy. Um, there's antidepressants and medications. Can you touch upon those two things and why they're important? And then maybe tell us about some new things that are going on with respect to the treatment of depression. Okay, sure. Uh, There are new things, by the way. So for a long time, uh, people have been aware that those neurochemical, neurotransmitter alterations uh, in the brain are modifiable by certain types of medications. They also can be set off and made worse by certain things that we take. Alcohol is not a good thing for people who have depression. Um, Cocaine, things like that. Um, So chemicals alter brain function, some in a bad way. Antidepressants do it by trying to restore the balance that we infer is, is all botched up and they work, but not for everybody. And we have now learned that there are, and there is probably no single thing as a single depression. There are depressions, and what that means is that there are different causes. 
So some can be caused by head trauma, some by sleep apnea, some by serotonin dysregulation, some by um, chronobiology, I mean, the things of jet travel and setting off things where people have difficulties. So it's important to try to find accurately the most likely cause and to treat it. In the medication arena, there are, gosh, are probably about 40 plus antidepressants that can be commonly used. Most of them don't work very much different than any of the others. They hmm. all sort of produce improvements if you're lucky enough to find the right one. And about 40%, sometimes a little higher. Then with switches and, if, and or adding other things, we can get that up higher. But there is a cluster of individuals that we don't have good medication treatments to resolve yet, and that's what's called treatment-resistant depression. It doesn't mean the person's resistant to getting treatment. It means the depression just doesn't want to go away with the treatments that we use. And those occur in probably about 30% of the people who have these syndromes. That's high, 30%. So it's like saying we're doing the best we can, but a third of the people still end up struggling. And in those cases now, one of the very exciting new medication approaches has been a, a new arena, glutamatergic, that's a fancy way, <laughs> but glutamatergic mechanisms um, can be altered by a medication that's a little unique now, and that's ketamine. And ketamine uh, sort of got known to us as a street drug. It's an anesthetic. It's used in surgery. If you take enough of it under proper conditions with somebody doing it, it puts you to sleep. Hmm. Then, in different doses and different administration, people discovered that it could produce hallucinations and dissociative responses, and so it became a street, a street drug, special K, a nickname. Hmm. And when given intravenously, um, in slower and lower doses, magically almost, and I use that word intentionally just to illustrate it's sometimes very dramatic, we can see improvements that occur sometimes within hours for people who have been really pretty severely depressed and with treatment resistance. You hear phrases like, this is the first time since I don't remember when that I felt this way. The lights are brighter. I feel like laughing. Um, and unfortunately, those effects fade. They tend to last only for brief periods, sometimes days, four, five, six days, but they do go away. And so we haven't figured out yet, other than trying repeats, how to sustain this. Happily, pharmaceutical companies have gone back to work on this arena trying to figure out how those, how this approach could be converted into pills that people can take at home and how we could figure out a way to sustain things. It doesn't mean that ketamine is the answer to everybody because there are, again, different underlying abnormalities. But for many of the people who have treatment resistance, it certainly appears that we were using medications that didn't alter 
where the real abnormality started. And uh, so this is very promising. The psychotherapy arena is really important. It needs to be considered not as a competitor to medications, but it's teaching people new ways to cope with stresses, to keep them under control, to get rid of the things that set off episodes, to learn how to manage alcohol abuse and, and uh, conflicts and temper. Uh, and the approaches of cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, also can be used to help influence how you can't sleep. And that gets to be pretty distressing when it goes on. So there are some dealing with insomnia. But it's, it's literally learning through therapy how we alter our thinking so that it can influence and change our behavior. And in that process, those become tools that we can carry with us. And probably, not surprisingly to me, but probably the, the, most of the studies have come to the same conclusion that when properly combined uh, for those who are severe enough to require medications, the combination of medication and psychotherapy is the most effective. And that makes sense. If you have a cardiac condition, the doctors don't just give you a pill, a beta blocker, blood pressure pill, and say, go home, take these. They'll tell you, exercise, change your diet, stop your stresses, stop the alcohol, get rid of the fights with your wife. These are combining things that we then get the best results from, from doing. And the same approach is best used with depressions. And I'd like to conclude uh, or finish up with uh, learning a little bit more about the University of Michigan Depression Center. Um, I think people will take notice that uh, uh, they've never heard of or maybe not know of something called a depression center. Can you tell us a little bit about your center and how it was formed and what kind of work you do there? Because the um, syndromes of depression and bipolar illness, we're talking about these as well, we're, we're simply the most common of the brain mental illnesses and the most disabling and costly. And we were learning so much, but it was all scattered. So in contrast to the progress that was being made in cancer and in heart disease, in the late 1990s, um, I was approached by a family and they asked, why aren't there centers of excellence for depressions and bipolar illnesses as there are for cancers? And I said, there should be. <laughs> and um, with a small gift, and that's gotten considerably bigger uh, through the years. I mean, many people have supported it. We decided that we would just follow the same pathway that has been so successful in tackling cancers. Um, that was to start a comprehensive center of excellence. So the Michigan Depression Center was the first, the inaugural center of its kind in the world. Wow. And yeah. um, part of the mission, I mean, the mission was we have to find these things earlier because that's when they start. We have to treat more effectively, and that means better research and new treatments. 
we have to sustain wellness because of this episodic recurrent pattern. The fourth mission was to do any of these things. We have to overcome stigma because people still don't even want to talk about these conditions. It's still whispering. And for that reason, that's why we called it a depression center, to take it head on. And then finally, the recognition that I had when I was making the proposal was one center will never be enough. Cancer centers made their progress by working together and sharing data. So we proposed that we would start the National Network of Depression Centers in NDC. There now are 25 of us, and we're right. sharing data. And uh, if we had the resources, we would solve these conditions much, much more rapidly. But um, uh, there's good th think there are good things happening right now. This field is being understood. It's not anything to whisper about. It's an illness. It's treatable, and we just need better answers and, and better dissemination of all of the approaches that really work to the people who are struggling. Well, Doctor, I just want to take the, take this last few seconds to thank you um, on behalf of our listeners uh, for providing us so much wonderful information and resources at the University of Michigan Depression Center. Um, I'm Dan Lukasik from Where's With depression.com. Join us next week for another interesting interview.